The gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 29, and then we will read from the book of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Then from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Sometime in this message today, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 12. But we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 14. Before we open to this passage and begin to think through it together, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests, the whole congregation of priests. We have been prophets this week out in the world, seeking to live your gospel out, seeking to be salt and light that your word would be seen and heard in the world. Father, in that way, we've all been prophets here in Memphis. But this morning we're priests gathered before you, for you have told us to come in prayer, bringing our families, our marriages, our children, our parents, our grandparents before you, bringing our neighbors, bringing this city. Our Father, we thank you that in this week, through the service of many Christians and Christian leaders and godly people, the city has avoided real conflict, riots. Our Father, thank you. We pray, our Father, that each one of us would be engaged in prayer, would be engaged in living out the gospel in such a way that we would bring peace, that we would bring reconciliation through Christ to the world around us, in this city, in this place, in this time. Our Father, we pray for Kenneth Vaughn this morning and Harvest Church. Bless Harvest Church, Father. Grower, strengthener, Give her strength for this time. I pray that you would comfort her. Bring healing to Kenneth Vaughn. Heal him completely, Father. Restore him. That he might continue to lead and proclaim your word. We pray for Phil Halley this morning, Father. And for Sally. We pray that 
his recovery would continue in every part of his body. Oh, Father, what's not possible among men is possible with you. And we lay him before you now just as those men laid that paralytic before Jesus. And we ask you, oh, Father, heal him. Give Sally strength for these times as he's coming home. Our Father, continue to use the folks of Christ's covenant church to bless this precious family. We thank you for how you've blessed. Now we pray as we open your word that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach. He can't preach, Father, so that it will make any difference in our lives. But you're able to speak that way. We've heard your voice in this place. We're not the same people we were. As week after week, your Holy Spirit has applied your word to our lives and changed us. And we pray that that change would continue. Maybe for some people, we pray that change would begin this morning. Oh, Father. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. May we know when we leave here in a few minutes that you have spoken for the glory of Christ. Amen. The history of Satan from the incarnation to the return of Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is about, not the story of Satan so much. But it's the history of Christ. The Gospels are the history of Christ as he came, the Son of God and Son of Man. It's the record of what he did on earth. But here's this ascension. And he goes home to glory. And that's where Revelation takes up. This Revelation is the history of Jesus, the ascended Jesus, in glory. It's the history of Jesus from his ascension to his return. We come to the 20th chapter this morning. To understand Revelation 20, one must understand the context of the chapter. One must look at the outline of at least the last 10 chapters. From chapter 11 through chapter 17, mark it down. It's easy to understand. From chapter 11 through chapter 17, we see evil in ascendancy as it never had been since the beginning of the world. Through Satan, the Antichrist, and the prophet, evil ascends to the peak, ascends to its highest point of power in chapters 11 through 17. Evil reigns in those chapters, so much so that the people of God will seem to disappear when that happens. The church and the work of Christ will appear to be eradicated. It will seem as if Christ and his followers have been defeated. However, in chapter 18, everything changes. The great worldwide secular city of man, the city that is saturated with materialism, sexual immorality, perversity, 
and saturated with a hatred for God. This humanistic culture, this city of the Antichrist, is completely destroyed. It falls. So chapters 18, 19, and 20 are focused on the fall and complete destruction of evil. In chapter 18, the great work of the unholy trinity. The worldwide secular city of Babylon is destroyed. We saw last week in chapter 19 that Jesus rides forth leading the armies of heaven. As the king of kings and lord of lords, he rides forth in power to utterly do what? To destroy specifically the beast, meaning the Antichrist, and the prophet of the Antichrist. So we see in chapter 18, the destruction of this worldwide culture of evil. Then we see in chapter 19, the destruction of the Antichrist and his prophet. Chapter 20, that puts it in context. Chapter 20 is dedicated to Jesus in similar flash fashion, crushing Satan. Satan had been the architect of evil that constructed the worldwide godless city of Babylon. He had been the patron of the culture of the Antichrist and the prophet. We've seen the culture destroyed. We've seen the Antichrist destroyed. Now only Satan remains. In chapter 20, details his demise. Now that's the context of chapter 20. If you're not familiar with chapter 20, I must tell you that the 20th chapter of Revelation is one of the most puzzling and controversial passages in all of Scripture. This morning, and for the next two or three Sundays, we will be focused on this chapter. We'll read the whole chapter every Sunday. I hope you'll read it every day during the week to become so familiar with it you memorize parts of it. However, I will not spend our time spelling out all the different debates and interpretations of Revelation chapter 20. Amid all those debates, we are apt to lose the wonder, the victory, the beauty that are in this passage. We will move slowly through the chapter, giving ourselves time to digest the different events being portrayed. I've told you several times, my goal in preaching through Revelation is to do it in a way that you'll be able to look at each chapter individually where you are without calling me and saying to your wife, to your husband, your children, I can tell you what's in that passage. I can tell you what's in that chapter. I know what it means. That's the way I want to teach it. He tells us in that first chapter that he means us to read this and not only read it, but to understand it. I resisted that for years. I thought it was just beyond understanding. That was one of the greatest mistakes I've made in my ministry. I pray that four weeks from now, you will be able to say, 
to your children, to your husband, to your wife, that you'll be able to say to each other, let me tell you what's happening in Revelation chapter 20. This morning, we'll be focused on the first three verses. Revelation is a book, and you know this, we've talked about it. It's not a chapter after chapter of didactic doctrinal teaching like we see in Romans or Galatians or Ephesians. It's a book filled with pictures, graphic pictures, powerful, extraordinary, even bizarre pictures. One well-known reformed minister that I know says it this way, if you don't understand these pictures in Revelation, get your children to explain them to you. They love picture books. And there's a lot of truth in that. So the first scene we see in Revelation 20 is quite dramatic. Let's look at it. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Chapter 20 does not start with the great last battle between Jesus and Satan. John sees a great angel descend from heaven. He holds two items in his hand. He carries a great chain, not just a regular chain, it says a great chain. He carries a key, a key to the great abyss, to the bottomless pit. He seizes the dragon. There can be no mistake as to the identity of the dragon. John calls him there the ancient serpent, who is the devil and who is Satan. He says it specifically. The angel binds Satan with a chain, throws him into the pit, and seals the door shut. He's to remain bound for a thousand years. And then he'll be released for a short time. That's the scene. That's the picture that John sees. What does that picture mean? What was Jesus telling John with that scene? To understand this scene, we must ask and answer three questions. First, what does a thousand years mean? What does that mean? Second question, what does the binding of Satan mean? And thirdly, when was Satan bound? Or when will he be bound? So first, what does these 1,000 years, what do they mean here? Well, Revelation, as you know, we've talked about this before, is filled with numerical symbolism. There are specific numbers that stand as symbols, for instance, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12. Seven is a number of perfection all through Revelation. 12 is a number of completion. You had the 12 tribes of Israel that represent all the people of Israel. You had 
the 12 apostles that represent all the people of God. So what about the thousand years? It's simply symbolic of a very, very long time. We still use a phrase like that, about a thousand years. We will say, looking at some project, something like that will take a thousand years to accomplish. Now, what have we done? Have we sat down and calculated and grafted out and said, yep, it'll do that specifically, it'll take 1,000 years. No, what are we saying? It's going to take ages to get it done. The Bible uses it in the same way. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, we read, Indeed, every animal of the forest is mine, even the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, he's not saying God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Count out, count out a thousand. He owns those cattle. But he doesn't own the cattle on hill 1001. You know he's not saying that. God owns all the hills and he owns all the cattle on all the hills. That's what he's saying. No, the a thousand hills are an immeasurable number of hills. So a thousand years here is symbolic of just a very long time. But we know it's not forever because verse 3 ends by saying, after the thousand-year period, Satan must be released for a little while. So we have answered the question, what does a thousand years mean? A very long time. What does the binding of Satan mean? He begins with the sight of an angel descending from heaven with the key to abyss, to the abyss, and a great chain. This is a symbol. There's no physical chain that can bind Satan. No physical chain can do that. Satan is a spiritual creature and he's bound by a spiritual force. What does the abyss and chain then symbolize? When one is chained, he is restrained. He is inhibited. If one is thrown into a prison, he's limited in where he can go and what he can do. It means that Satan's power for that time has been held in check. It does not say Satan was destroyed, simply limited, limited in what he could do. Does Satan's power continue through this period? Yes, but that power is limited. In two weeks, We'll come back, two Sundays from now, we'll come back to when Satan is released. His power then is unrestrained. And we will be able to witness the difference between a restrained power and an unrestrained power. And there's a huge difference. So we've answered the question, what do the thousand years mean? They're symbolic. A very long time. We've answered the question of what the binding of Satan meant. It means he's restrained. All right. When did this binding take place? When was he bound? Chapter 20 details events concerning Satan that began with the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God. 
It's not just Satan contained this time. It goes back to look at the incarnation when Revelation speaks of Satan. Remember in chapter 12 of Revelation, we read that this dragon, Satan, was waiting on the incarnation. He was waiting for the child to be born. He was waiting so he could kill the child as soon as he was born. Go back this afternoon, chapter 12, Revelation, and read it. It's talking about this same dragon. The conflict between God and Satan is an ancient conflict that reaches far back past the Gospels, back to Eden. But let's just take the New Testament. When Jesus was anointed as Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, it was then that his ministry was inaugurated. Remember, he went to John and asked John, to, the baptizer, to baptize him. John said, you don't need to be baptized. I, you need to baptize me. John was saying, you're not a sinner. Jesus wasn't confessing any sins. He was saying to John, it's time to begin the mission, John. The mission that God has sent me here to do. Anoint me for this mission. All right, you're there. You see it. He came away from John the baptizer. He came away from that baptism. What was the very first thing he did? What was the first thing God called him to do? He went to the wilderness to confront Satan. And we read in, read this afternoon in Luke 4. He was led. We, we somehow preach that to where Satan sought him out in the wilderness. Maybe Satan led him into the wilderness. And Jesus was this pitiful victim of Satan's great power, temptation. No. He went to confront Satan. The Son of God had been waiting on this confrontation since the fall. Now, with that background, let's go back to our gospel. Back to the gospel reading that we had this morning from Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to read that again. Look at it with me, please. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? In other words, can this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, that's Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons and daughters cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come to you. Remember that phrase. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods Unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus heals a blind and deaf man who was also demon-possessed. Satan owned this man. He was a part of the kingdom of evil, a part of Satan's kingdom. Jesus healed him and set him free from Satan's power. 
The Pharisees accused Jesus of doing this by the power of Satan himself. Jesus points out that Satan would never cast out Satan as then he would be in a kingdom and have a kingdom divided against itself. Then Jesus asked, if, if I did this by Satan's power, how do your own people cast out demons? By your logic, would it not also be by Satan? But then, here's what we want to see. Then Jesus said that the demon had been cast out by the Spirit of God and that the kingdom, the kingdom of God had come, had invaded the kingdom of Satan. Look at his words. Look at verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He was saying, I have come into Satan's kingdom. This is the prince of the power of the air that the apostles, or how they refer to Satan in Scripture. He was saying he had invaded Satan's kingdom and bound him that he might plunder his kingdom. The Greek word for bind in verse 29 is the same one used for bound in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. Jesus also spoke of restraining or casting out Satan just two days before his crucifixion. Look with me at John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, and heard it said that it had thundered. It had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, do you see that? Underline it. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was facing the immediacy of his crucifixion, his atoning death. He was two days away from it. And he said, I am troubled in my soul. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He said, I can't say that. That's why I'm here. That's why the Father sent me. So he said, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answered him. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Some thought that it had thundered. The voice was so loud. Others thought it was the voice of an angel. And Jesus told them the voice was for their benefit, not his. He said, now is a ruler of this world cast out. Now. And look at what he associates it with. And when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, it's Satan being cast out is tied directly to people coming to Jesus, to the growth of Jesus' church. 
to the spread of the gospel. As Christians, we've tended to take the presence of Christ in his church much too lightly. I can tell you, no one here, I mean, even here in the South, <laughs> in Memphis, where they used to build street corners to put Baptist churches on, you know, even we have tended to take the presence of Christ in his church too lightly. We fail to realize the shocking reality and power of the incarnation, the shocking reality and power of the crucifixion. Where Satan lost all his power to accuse anyone. Because Jesus had taken their sin. An atonement had been made. Before then, he had been able to say, look at your servant Job. He's he's a sinner. He could go through the Old Testament and David. He could name Moses. He could name Jeremiah Isaiah and say, God, they're sinners. And you're holy. If you don't do something about them, if you don't judge them for their sin, then how do you call yourself a holy judge? What happened at Calvary? Satan thought he was putting an end to Jesus. And all the while, all the sins of his people were laid on him. Your sins were laid on Jesus that day. My sins were laid on Jesus that day. Satan could no longer look at John Sartell, would not be able to look at John Sartell and say, He's, he sinned. Hold him accountable. There's only one answer. Jesus has died. The coming of the Son of God was an invasion of Satan's territory, an invasion of a territory that was in a fallen world, in rebellion against God. Folks, imagine what this world would look like without the incarnation without any mention of Jesus and the gospel, without the Son of God and Son of Man, without the New Testament, without the cross, without the resurrection, without the gospel, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, without the church, what would this world look like? We, we think somehow it would, it would some, there'd be some semblance of what we see today. No, there wouldn't be. Theologians call the last 2,000 years the gospel age, the messianic age. Why? This has been the age of the good news of salvation. This has been the age of Jesus conquering Satan's territory in every nation, on every continent. What was it Jesus said? And you know this by heart. The disciples confessed, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he looked at them and he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And what? And the very gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. In other words, the church, his people would advance to the gates of hell. 
I will empower my church, and I will restrain the powers of hell. To set the final work of Satan and his destruction in this context, God causes us to see something that happened in the Gospels and continued right on through the Messianic age. He begins with the sight of an angel descending from heaven with the key to the abyss and the great chain. I think John is seeing a vision of what happened when the Son of God and Son of Man came. That's what Jesus was saying when he healed the deaf mute who was also demon-possessed. You enter into the strong man's house and plunder his house. The work of Satan was restrained so that the church would advance through the world to the ends of the earth. Now we are apt to say, I've said it myself, Satan is not bound. Look at all the evil in the world over the last 2,000 years. In fact, just in modern times, we've, as we've preached through Revelation, we've said it over and over again. Marx was satanic. Stalin was satanic. Hitler was satanic. Mao Zedong was satanic. They're responsible for deaths of 100 million people. How can Satan be bound? Revelation 20, 1 through 3, does not teach that Satan was destroyed. It does not teach that his, that his influence and power have been eradicated. It does teach that he cannot stop the advance of the gospel. In Russia, the church actually grew during Stalin's reign of terror. He dedicated his whole life to the destruction of any idea of God and destruction of the church. And yet the church grew. Under Mao Zedong's awful satanic rule, the church in China grew in spite of it. If Satan were free to express his power to its fullest extent, he would shred every believer and every church into oblivion. That's what we saw. This evil age that we're coming back to, he talks about it again. Remember that these times were cyclic. They, they, they cycled back and forth. What you see in chapters 12 and 13 is also mentioned in chapters 18 and 19 and 20. He comes back to the subject. What we saw with the evil age of the Antichrist and his prophet, when Satan's power was unchained in chapter 13. We see it again in verse 7 of chapter 20, returns to the awful reign of evil when Satan is released. At that time, the church is just eradicated. It seems that all is lost. No. Look at the difference between what you see in the age of the Antichrist and what you've seen previous to that. So during the Messianic age, Satan is restrained by Christ that the church might grow throughout 
what had been his domain. I came to this point and said, how am I going to close this message? And I thought of a story that I read years ago. Captain James Cook was a decorated English sea captain. He was a seafaring explorer in the 18th century, in the 1700s. He remains a legend in the history of the British Empire. His far-flung and daring explorations, I've read them. It's, they're incredible. He rewrote the maps, redesigned the maps of the world. On one expedition, he was in the South Pacific. He was anchored near an island. He permitted his men to go ashore. The natives attacked them before they could get back to their boats, and they captured one of his men. They were cannibals. And these men had no guns with them. And they set offshore, helpless, as the natives killed and ate their shipmate. Twenty years later, Captain Cook was again in the same part of the Pacific. His ship was overtaken by a storm and damaged. For days they drifted helplessly. Until they saw an island. But Cook recognized it. It was the same island where the cannibals had eaten his friend. They tried to keep the ship from the island. But it was to no avail. The ship was driven onto the rocks. They quickly got across the beach and hid in the trees. They inched their way up the hill. Knowing that at any moment the cannibals would attack. They came to the top of the hill and looked out across the valley. And all of them burst out laughing, shouting, celebrating. What caused them to do that? Because halfway across the valley, in the middle of the village where the cannibals lived, There was now a building with a steeple, a church. Once more, a savage and satanic culture had been conquered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say, well... But that's the story of all of us. You think I would never be a cannibal. Yes, you would. I'd never be a cannibal. I couldn't be. Yeah. Yes, you would. We're sinners. I hope you can identify with that story. Because that story is your story. And that story's my story. Do you know where you would be without the incarnation, without the gospel, 
without the Holy Spirit that has changed your heart, where and what would you be? I can't imagine where my family would be today if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Amen. Our hymn is a great, great hymn. And I hope you'll sing it this morning with a new energy. Jesus shall reign. Hymn 441.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen.